0: Welcome to LIFE, L-I-F-E, Luxury in Full Effect. I'm David Frangione. I'm here with Justin Lee. And this is the show where we interview the people operating at the top of the luxury market, from entertainment, real estate, celebrity industries, and everything in between. Together, we'll hear their life stories and how they got to where they are today. Hello, everybody. This is David Frangioni, and welcome to Life, L-I-F-E, Luxury in Full Effect with David Frangioni and Justin Lee. Justin, my partner in crime, is traveling the world right now, so I'm flying solo on this voyage, but it is, in fact, a really, really exciting show we have for you. Our guest is Jim Heimler from JHAI, James Heimler Architect Incorporated, and he has a fascinating career in the architectural world, working in many different areas of architecture on projects. He's done literally thousands of projects all over the world, and uh, I'm so excited for him to share his life and career with everyone. So, Jim, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here. So, tell us a little bit about the beginning and how Jim Heimler came to evolve and and some of the background in your story. And, and let's start with the roots and how you found your passion and and, uh, the beginning before we get to your launching your firm and kind of that chapter. How did it start?
1: I guess you'd say first grade. You had art class and you had to design those houses with the front door and the two windows and the pitch roof and the chimney and the smoke. I was doing floor plans. So I kind of got stuck on it really early. And uh, so growing up, I was doing house designs
0: from like first grade on. The first grade, you were doing house designs? Yes. Wow. And, and so, but I mean, how does that happen? I mean, we all have our calling and I was a drummer from age two and people ask me all the time, well, how did you, how did you choose drums at age two when you ended up having that as something you've, you've done for your whole life? And I have no clue how it started at two. I can only attest it to my parents' support and love and, and interest because I don't remember and my parents are no longer alive. But do you remember what, how things kind of came together?
1: I don't know why I got into that. My mom would say, she whispered in my ear once that uh, she wanted to be married to an architect. My dad was an engineer. He was building our house, and I was brought up on a street, which was the first integrated city in, in California, and so we had lots of great architecture on our street. I mean, every house was architecture.
0: Where are you in California at this time?
1: I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in the San Fernando Valley. I grew up in Laurel Canyon.
0: Okay, so you've always been in L.A. area your whole life.
1: Yes, I grew up in Hollywood.
0: Ah, okay, literally. <laughs> okay, so at fir- in first grade, you're drawing homes. And then how does that evolve through your adolescence into high school, college, etc.? Like before the firm starts, how does that develop into even a more clear path, let's say? I'm
1: watching my dad complete our house, he's building, it the whole time. I'm living off concrete floors at the start. I also walked the neighborhood, saw the houses, absorbed that feeling. We had Elwood House next door. We have a coning house a few doors away. But every house on the street was a mid-century modern. And they were all pretty cool. And the neighborhood was pretty artsy and a lot of producers and stuff like that on the street. Obviously, I didn't know any of that growing up. But you feel it. And I feel what I do. I don't see what I do. I feel everything. And so as I went through designing homes and I got into junior high, I was took every drafting class they I had in high school. I took every drafting class. I think uh, I had a girlfriend back in like fourth grade. Her dad was an architect. I don't know how that affected me because I didn't know him, but everybody around me was into fourth design. Fourth
0: grade? Wow. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, your passion was so clear and the way you're describing, you're following up with it where you're taking all these classes and I mean, you're just... The parallel that I understand it, if I'm getting the whole picture clearly, when I fell in love with the drums early on, two, three, four, I was taking lessons with the support of my parents by the time I was seven or eight. And I just kept studying and seeking out the best teachers I could. It sounds like architecture was almost an identical kind of thing for you, where once once it really hit your heart that early on in first grade, you just went with it. I mean, you just kept improving and learning and growing, and you know, you stayed clear. Absolutely.
1: And at a high school, I wanted to work for architects. I was graduating high school in 1974. It was a massive recession, and there were no jobs. So probably a year ahead of time, I started calling all the architects in LA City, probably LA County, and I'd just go through the yellow pages. I'd call everybody, and there were no jobs so the only jobs I could get was, was a big firm so I could fire everybody else and then I'd get fired so I ended up picking the architect I wanted to work for and he had worked for Lloyd Wright and Schindler only and I worked for him and I beat out a USC architectural graduate of course I wasn't going to get paid
0: and he probably wanted money this I, is a free internship but that's all you were looking for so you could get experience
1: experience is all that mattered I, I could work before work and after work but I was working 66 hour weeks for free and uh By doing what you love you bet, and uh, he knew how to design, and I just kept working with him for ten years. Robert Marks Architects.
0: But you didn't work ten years for free. How many years were free? Oh, probably the summer. One summer was free, and then you started earning some money there. Well, if you call two fifty an hour back then, for money. But yeah, I was making my two fifty an hour. <laughs> Three fifty an hour. Two fifty. Two fifty an hour. Sorry. Yeah. Big bucks. <laughs> okay, so well, so okay that and that. So what really hits me there is. How committed you were to your goals as opposed to money, which is the way that you become a master at whatever you have in your heart and soul is always learning and growing and putting your craft first and the money comes later. And so many people, especially young people, but isn't it interesting how our careers are in such parallel because I did the same thing when I was a kid and I look at today's generation and... There's and people have this mentality that somehow, with virtually no experience and very little developed talent, if any, you all of a sudden get fifty or sixty thousand a year because that's what you decided you wanted to do. But the fact is that the way to mastery really is through having as as great a set of mentors and as much experiential hands-on learning and uh, basically tasks as you can possibly do until you become the master. And it sounds like you took that path. I mean, I'm just fascinated at how you were just so clear. I mean, at that age, very few people get how much sacrifice is necessary. And then with that sacrifice, well, now how are you going to apply it? What are you going to do? And you did it. So did you have a mentor? How did you figure this out so early? No mentor in that respect.
1: My dad worked a lot. My mom worked in the evenings after driving us all over the city since we grew up in the hills my neighbors all tend to do a lot my neighbor was milk holland the drummer percussionist for the whole world he was like the top guy on the planet for for percussion so if you look up all the mellow rock albums and the jazz albums he was pretty much on every one of
0: them he gave you mentorship
1: a little bit on drumming
0: (laughs) okay well that's not going to help you much at the architectural firm i don't think
1: (laughs) actually architecture has a lot to do with music and rhythm so for me you feel it. So I grew up with the music. I grew up with bagpipes every Sunday morning. And there was a lot of music in the canyon.
0: So creativity is what was really getting into your blood, it was, it was the just, creative side.
1: Yeah, just I feel it. I love it. It's, it's something I love now. People see me, never met me, and I'm on a job site. They go, you must love what you do. I go, how do you know? They go, because you're almost drooling. I go, well, <laughs> that's what it takes. But I just have fun brainstorming, dreaming, coming up with things to help people. But it's not just the buildings. It's city, is civilization, it's politics. I was involved in politics at eight years old, going to campaign headquarters and working like a lot of the people in the canyon. So that, that passion, it's helping people. And it's, whether it's politics, architecture, for me, it all kind of ties together.
0: So you spend 10 years at this firm, which is essentially from college to 10 years later. Yes and what what happens what when so did it did you transition then to jhai or was there a step in between
1: as i got out of high school i started talking to some people i would get some freelance jobs real tiny like little uh closet editions or things like that and then at the same time i was building up a practice and new people call you get small edition remodels on homes and uh and when things slowed down at with his company where i was getting kind of tired of my uh, of not having more things to do. I worked for a few years at a couple other companies, but at the same time building up my practice at the third company, I was working for them about 40 hours a week and I was working for me 40 hours a week. But then I started working for me 80 hours a week and 120 hours a week is a little too much. So at that point I just quit the other company where I could have been a boss or a partner. I just didn't want that. And uh, cause I like my own direction. I like trying to help people my way, which seems to work and uh, So I I continued with that. At that point, I've never slowed down since. And uh, i worked out of the houses for a few years. And then I started hiring people. And then we had to move out of the house. And I've had my own offices in the same location now at 34 years. We're staff about 15. And it's all senior level or higher level employees.
0: And so you transitioned out of the first job. So you always, if we looked at kind of a crossfade, it was like primarily The other architectural firms work for a period of time, and then over the years, it starts to transition where it's more of your own, less of theirs, until the point where your schedule was so packed that doing their work just wasn't possible anymore.
1: Yeah, that that would be the case. And I didn't want the partnerships that were offered. I didn't want the raises. I would prefer just to be on my own and do my own
0: thing. I see. Well, that's really a big, I mean, you look at it as an entrepreneur, that's a big decision. You know, when you're at a crossroads like that, it can be appealing to say, well, maybe I'll let somebody else take the burden and I won't have to think about payroll. And when Susie Q calls in sick and when John Smith wants to leave for six months and, you know, all of that HR stuff that we have to deal with as entrepreneurs, you would have been able to just become a partner at that firm and not have to deal with so much of that. What was the primary prevailing reason that you said I'll put up with it. I'll deal with it, and I, I want to be on my own.
1: I think there were two things. One, when I worked for other people, if they weren't doing things that I thought were the best for the client or the best architecture that I could come up with, it was very aggravating. I'd come home very frustrated, more so than if I was broke. It was it was that bad because it's it's emotional. It's I know I know what's right. I know what's wrong because I feel it, and I've I've always had that pulse. And the other side of it is my wife's a landscape architect, and she was going to be started help me with all the books and the bookkeeping and all that end of it. So she's real good with the administrative side of things. And then I'm real good with the design and the clients and the communicating and running the company from the production side of it. So the two of us really cover both sides of the company. We just started it without really almost anybody's help. We just did it. And it just worked out. You know, I uh, see. Everything, everything I, falls into place.
0: So you guys built it up together? Yes. So what was the first, so you, you start JHAI, you're on your own, you're working out of your house. What's the first big job and the moment that starts to shift from what you're doing at that time to at the next level?
1: The shift was more just the amount of jobs coming in and you only can, I only could draw and go to the city and meet with people so much. Um, and when you're doing 80, 80, hour, 80 to 90 hours a week, too much is when it's getting over to the 100. You know you're way beyond what you can do. So as I got that, my parents also owned a lot of apartment buildings. So I started doing remodeling for them. And that ended up being about a third of my beginning jobs. And uh, one of those switched out to doing a big addition remodel to an office building. And that had been my second office building ever. And uh, once I had that, it was a large enough job. I had no problem quitting the other companies and uh, just going full-time on my own
0: so then you're working for your parents rentals and taking other projects And you get the big office project what's the first big major client after that what's it what's like now you take it up from just having a lot of jobs to really starting to take it even further take us along the journey
1: the journey was addition remodels to homes mostly and i was doing about 20 to 40 per year, every year. Then it switched. And, and these are smaller jobs. None of them, none, not the big <laughs> jobs. We tend to do middle size now, You know, maybe up to 10 million or so, or you group them, That could be $100 million worth. But it was more of the quantity. So I ended up doing about, up until that last recession, I was doing about 120 jobs. Mm-hmm. That means you're dealing with 120 clients. You're dealing with every consultant and coordinating every job, every city, every code. That's all. I mean, most people never even dream that up. We, I get together, with the architects, they ask, how many jobs are we doing? And I'll go, what are you doing? And they'll go, oh, we've got three, four five jobs a year. And I'm going, "Well, oh, we're doing 120 different jobs a year. No,
0: it's a, that's a massive, that's a massive number. Oh, and, and you're keeping it high level boutique at, you know, it's not like some giant machine feeling company wow. where, it's like you go through three voicemail prompts and six secretaries to find out, you know, if your CAD file's ready.
1: Correct. And I've always liked being hands-on. We have people answering the phone. I don't give into the computer on that front. We have obviously switched to computers for most things. It also takes away from the architecture a lot because you're not feeling it when you're drawing it. You're spending your time finding where are the programs and where to put everything. The quantity, my brain works real fast. So for me, the 120 jobs to manage is not too bad Uh, as the jobs get bigger. And then we started moving into like you're saying, what what were the next jobs? I would chase jobs. And since I didn't know business, I didn't know marketing, I'm just developing it as I go, you know, training, I started calling people and just cold calling in a sense. And I called it my good neighbor policy, introduce yourself to all your neighbors. So it it was the same way I went after what architect I'd worked for after high school. I'd call everybody out of the yellow pages or out of lists. And I mean, when I say everybody, I'm that tenacious. I call every single number. I put them all on my computer, I track it, I write down what goes on, and that way, people started to get to know me, and at the same time, I started applying for uh, jobs that people would told me not to apply for. So like one of the biggest clients we ended up with was Los Angeles Unified School District, and it's very institutional. You've got to follow their rules, which is not my best thing
0: in the world. And long timelines, I would imagine, from beginning to starting.
1: You start the job, it might be fixing lockers. And then all of a sudden, we started getting a couple years back during the recession. We ended up with, in, in 30, uh, what, three months, we ended up with 150 school sites for all unified. That's like $100 million of construction, tying them all together. And at that point, obviously, I have a big staff, and they're doing the work. Um, but I'm making sure everybody's in place. I'm at a level that if I have to hire 20 uh, senior-level architects, I have enough uh, contacts that I keep, that I keep mm-hmm. everything. That I could find the right twenty people, find space, find the computer, software, hardware, furniture, and have everything done and everybody up and running within uh, one week. That means <laughs> finding them, negotiating salary yeah, with everybody, and having it up and running. You were asking about what was it, uh, one of the bigger jobs? Nineteen, I think it was uh, ninety-four. We had the earthquake, and I had a month prior to the earthquake. I met a client, and he had a large building on Ventura Boulevard out here in the valley, one of the bigger building and uh, he just needed a a small permit, so I did that. When the earthquake hit, I got a call from him because one of his buildings got toasted in the earthquake. The other one that's tied to it burned because of the earthquake, so I ended up with a brand-new 36-square-foot, brand-new building, totally custom, on Ventura Boulevard, which was seen all over the country, or actually the world, because that was the building on fire that was shown everywhere, and that, that became the centerpiece, which ended up getting AI awards and it's like living working it out of a house except it's a commercial project
0: it's amazing so tell us when did the environmentally conscious focus that you, you and your firm have and lead ap and you know that that whole side of things which you know is its own lane quite frankly when did that become so important and how did you develop that i
1: think that's also probably from first or second grade believe it or not in the canyon it was pretty liberal <laughs> head to the max, actually. So we were in campaign headquarters, and as a kid, I don't know if I knew who I was actually helping because I'm there because our parents take us these places, and you're working there kind of like major babysitting, except you're stuffing envelopes or whatever. But through all that- somehow, and Wait, but
0: who's this for? Who are you stuffing envelopes for now looking back?
1: I think the person was probably Tom, I think his name was Tom Bain. After that, it was Mayor Bradley. Oh, okay. You know, was, you know people running for president. At that point, I was high school. But I was doing that always. And But when we, we hiked up in the canyon a lot, if we were going to uh, cut a branch off a tree for a fort, we used to vote on things like that. We just didn't destroy a tree. It was like, it's nature. You're not going to destroy anything without everybody agreeing. So it just became part of my soul. So for me, every breath, every time you turn on the water, or turn on a light, or how long you're in the shower, it's, I pay attention to those kind of things. It's, it's you know how you live. And so it's ingrained in everything I do. And uh, so when I was in college, I mean, I was joining groups, getting on committees, changing laws, you know, working up, being a member of almost every group, which pretty much I still am. I used to spend my Saturdays just handwriting letters from high school, after high school, probably. But I'd spend every Saturday just writing letters to politicians. I didn't realize I could copy them over again and just put different address on all of them for a few years. And uh, once that, once I had more people here, then I started writing what I wanted and letting the staff send them out because it's a lot quicker that way.
0: And then how does that lead to lead?
1: Well, lead came in late, much later in the game. So lead came out about two and a half years, two and a half years, uh, years before I got it. I didn't like what they were doing because it's very political. And the tests, I didn't even know the tests were you know, what they were like. But uh, at a certain point, I go, you know, if I'm going to do this, you need to have credentials because what you don't have works against you. So I try to have everything. I decided, okay, I'm going to take the test. I'm not going to take any classes. I'm not going to study. It's a very hard exam. It's, it's, mem- it's straight memorization, and that's not my high point. I feel I don't memorize. So I took the test, missed it by a few points, took it again, missed it by one point with probably an hour of studying, studied more, passed it, and I gave myself 30 days, and I passed it. Most people take classes for about six months, and then it's a very, very hard test to pass. For me, it's straight memorization. It's not about what's green. It's about the numbers and memorizing what number represents a green idea. The test does not teach whether you know green or not. It teaches if you can memorize numbers on, you know, on, in a book.
0: But it represents your commitment to being environmentally conscious, bigger Correct. than just the, the title and the certification. So what is an environmentally conscious architect? What does that look like as you're doing all these projects?
1: In some projects, you get to do green. Sometimes you don't. Uh, when we did that big building after the earthquake, that was extremely green. So the way I look at green, I look at the holistic picture. And I've spoke, I, I do public speaking, so I've spoken to school administrators and civil engineering societies and groups and inspectors across California on on all these things. But for me, I start at the big picture. It's like, okay, what are your, who are the politicians? What, what are they voting for so that will get you to a clean environment? And, from all aspects and humanity too. It's, it, I'm starting to spend a lot of time on homeless issues and that's part of being green too.
0: And that's a big deal out in LA, especially right now.
1: Oh uh, yeah, and I'm working with another architect. His last name is Travaglini. So I thought you'd like that last name. And uh, we're starting to come up with ideas we're gonna start presenting and see if we can make some headway on a cost-effective systems, not extensive systems. But the greening on a building or on a site is, starts with me with what's going on around you And what you can tie together. So, if there's a building next door that has more opportunity than yours, maybe you should talk to your neighbor and tie your greening concepts together because their sites might be better than yours. It also has to do with obviously the site orientation and the hills and the trees and everything around you. From there, you start breaking down transportation and all the embodied energy that's going to go into the design because you've got a lot of transportation costs, possibly. And then Through the whole process and then the design itself, but it's the people on the team and if they're willing to think in the box or out of the box. Right now, California is so high in green. If you meet the building code, you're doing real well, but you can do a lot better. Most people do not want to spend the money on that. And that's same with lead. Lead is a very expensive process. So we start, we usually get people registered if they want to do that, but I'll explain to people, if They're going to take the money that they would use to get a lead certificate and they put that into the building. I can get more cost benefit out of the building than getting something registered because of the cost. So, usually, it's the big government projects or large private people or somebody with a huge marketing budget that they want to use the lead certificate for, for that. They'll go for those points.
0: When I in the tech world, you know, my background is heavily in the tech and control world, and of course, lead has been a buzzword, if you will, for quite some time now, over 10 years, as far as like the high end tech world, uh, maybe even closer to 20. And the focus is typically energy management and conservation, where we will actually put a control system in that allows an end user to control, to see how much energy they're using, and then control how they can reduce it and be more efficient, and then combine that, of course, with motorized window treatments to have light control and occupancy sensors to have electrical control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, since you're designing all of these plans, when do you introduce the tech side of it, and and how important is that to you?
1: Well, the tech side comes in day one because that's part of the agreement because you have to know if that's going to be your function or not. And then from there, you step up, To each of the different building products and figure out which ones will give you what and which will have the biggest impact. Uh, When I taught at at USC, a graduate class, the questions asked from the students after I did my my spiel was more had to do with countertops and finishes, and I look at that as the the littlest of the picture. I start with the biggest of the pictures. So the tech side of it, you have to know what it's going to be. When I start designing, I design everything from day one in my head, so I'm integrating every piece of it from the sec first line I draw. I don't take it one step at a time. Uh, that's how I can design real fast also. It's, it's, it's already in my head. Kind of like you feel it, you know it. So going back to the Scotty building, the one who burned down on the earthquake, we ended up, uh, the programs were over, but I got DWP to pay me to do energy studies and, and do the whole energy efficiency thing on that whole building. And we actually brought, the, I think we saved about a month's utility bill just on our design this is back in 94 95 and electrical uses climbed a lot from the 50s yeah i'll say to the '95s. so we weren't just saving a month we were probably saving three or four months yeah, maybe two or three months
0: what are you doing now for tech since you have such a clear vision of what you're going to design and how you're going to design it and it sounds like to me tech is involved on every design from day one and so it's just a matter of what tech and hello so what does that look like for you and your on on a typical project
1: everyone's totally different all our jobs are totally different and we work on every kind of project. So i can't go across the board easily that way most of like when we're doing school jobs they have uh, requirements embedded in in the district requirements so there's they 're meeting uh, state requirement standards, and all the electrical mechanical even plumbing stuff is done through the consultants and we can 't adjust any of that, so when I do bring it up, and i 'll give you an example it's usually no Jim, we, we would love to do that, but we can't so we're especially
0: school systems they don 't have the budget
1: well it 's not the budget it 's how the budgets are used, so we 're doing a whole like a hundred year old building and we 're upgrading HVAC systems. And I'm going, well, if I I insulate the exterior brick walls and then I put film on the windows, I could shrink the size of of all the mechanical systems, which saves a lot of structural work. It saves a lot of work, saves money. Budgeted for that, because that opens up a different can of worms and they can't jump the other can of worms because then there's a huge other cost. So I I present ideas and that doesn't work. Just like uh, um, if I come up with a new speaker system for an auditorium to replace an old one, they want to keep the old system because that's what they have approved in their specifications. I can't go and do something more cost, higher quality, a lot less money, and much more flexible. It's, it's not allowed for somebody else's system.
0: So you deal with it because you have a you have a solution for them, and it's a great solution. But you're restricted by what they're all the politics we'll call it, and the and the budgets and the details of how it's structured.
1: So and then so I can take it now to private clients and they'll go yes we want to go green but if California is already you know at a silver level let's say how much more do we want to go so we're working with some people now and I think they're going to go greener on on things if I back up to that that nineteen uh, eighty five office building I have that's facing south we had greenhouses we had planters we had shade. We had screening, uh, we had natural lighting inside corridors on a double-loaded corridor office building. We had natural light coming off the north side. I try to use every opportunity at any level there is because I study all of it every day uh, that I can integrate into a system. So I don't want it to feel homely if that's what the appropriate part of it. In terms of a house, if somebody says, hey, they want a bidet. I go, why don't we just go with a bidet seat on a regular toilet? It saves space. Saving space saves money. And you don't have to move around, you know. And so it's, more, again, more effective, more efficient. If somebody wants a bigger house and I can show them how to do a house that's smaller and get them everything they want, including the spatial requirements, I do that. I don't go for the second story addition if it's not necessary. I say, I can fix your first floor and give you everything you want. It'll save you money and you'll like it even better. And that's what would generally would happen.
0: Well, and it's, I mean, you're a man clearly of principles and ethics, which in, in our business is becoming more and more of a lost art, you know, and that's really what I hear you describing is it's, it's yes, it's all of your talent and experience at, at full work for the client to say, here's, here's how we'll do it. But in addition, it's the ethics of saying, you might've thought we needed to go this far, but we only have to go three quarters of that far, and we'll we'll get your objectives met, and then that actually saves the money not only within the three quarters, but the fact that you didn't go 100, and you went 75, and that's all they really needed, and that just says a lot about ethics.
1: Right, and so space, space how space is used, you can double use the same space at different times of the day if, if it works that way, so if you can design it for double use. efficiency. Efficiency; it saves building materials.
0: Period. So, how did you end up in China in the middle of all of this, and, and designing the Yang Yun Art Gallery? If I'm saying that correctly, hopefully I am. Tell us about that, because most most people don't, you know, if they're lucky to visit China. But you actually did a project in China. You want? You thought L.A. politics were tough. Tell us about China.
1: In my cold calling world, my name gets out all over the place, so the, you know people then start calling me that I don't know. So somebody would have referred this woman whose husband was a shipping container mogul. And uh, right. she already had two architects with models. of. There were two projects, actually, in the Grand Mall in Shanghai. And we ended up with both of them. So she called me. We met. I gave her an idea right there in front of her. And to back up, hair in terms of ideas, I get in, introduced to people who have architects all over the world. And they'll come and they'll say, well, what can you do? And I'll tell them what I would like to do. It's not what you do in interviews because you're talking about what your dreams are, not practicality. I end up getting the jobs like that. But the idea is I can throw out one I twenty ideas in an hour where other they're telling me their architects are all over the world, take a month or two to give them an idea. And I'm getting them right there walking through the property, whatever it is. It doesn't make a bit of difference.
0: So you, throw, you literally meet these people through networking, essentially. Yeah, and, yes. and and you're able to basically be inspired and give them ideas very very quickly that they connect with
1: and and i got hired right away ended up doing what you're talking about which was the kind of a jazz club with a retail uh, museum entry in in china in china so i was doing with the music i was dealing with the food and i was dealing with the retail museum style
0: sounds like heaven
1: and uh the, the other project in the same place was like a diplomats restaurant and this is Long time ago, before people were doing uh, weird, too many weird things in restaurants, but I had like I had the center room had waterfalls coming off the ceilings all around it. So you could push the water to full speed so you could be inside. Nobody could see in, but you had the water around with fish tanks and everything. Oh,
0: I got to see pictures of that. Now, Jim, how much do you have to physically go to China to pull this off and how much can you do remotely? Well, that
1: one, I didn't have to go to China at all because it's a tenant improvement inside a mall, inside a space. So they show okay. me the photographs. They show me ceilings, floors, walls, doors.
0: And you designed uh, it. They built it. You didn't have to go to China.
1: Right. And I did go. You know, I've been there. I actually got into it. And for some reason, both sets of sh- pictures I took didn't turn out very well. And the, the jazz club part never got built. Or ah. at least I couldn't find where they built it. Um, you
0: designed it, but they didn't build.
1: Yeah. That, well, that happens a lot in architecture up until five or 10 years ago, almost everything I designed got built. And uh, now certain things start and then people change their mind. They go in a different direction or the politics kill the project. Right. You just give up and don't want to keep the fight. And I'm real good at the politics. I do a lot of hearings and I uh, tend to win them all, but it's, they get harder and harder.
0: It sounds like stuffing envelopes at eight helps you later in life in understanding politics. Again, like architecture, it was kind of almost in your blood. Oh uh, Yeah. No, I, I mean, mean, it's a mindset, right? It's a spirit. It's not just, people say politics, it sounds so simple, but there's a lot of strategy and there's a lot of understanding that goes into to actually participating in politics and being political in a way that you can get your point across and kind of help move projects forward.
1: And you're asking, where did all this, you know, where did I get the energy? I, the energy I've always had, when McGovern was running for president, uh, I worked during the, the primary a lot, during the, the, the general election, Four of us from high school ran a headquarters and I was working 16 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half months and you don't get paid this is just helping somebody win
0: right, you're, it's for the cause
1: it's for the cause and you're just having a blast but when you run it, you see every piece of what's going on so right that, right you know, so it's a, it's a, and plus you have a lot of fun because you're meeting a lot of great people
0: you're a guy that really gets it you have spent a portion of your life fertilizing crop metaphorically speaking of course in all of this giving that you've done that the receiving has been five times as much but most people don't get how much giving you really have to do when you talk about putting it all on the line trying to get this candidate elected or trying to learn your craft and interning and all these things that the payoff is not hey look i just earned two thousand dollars this week you know i made some real money the payoff is I just got experience and just got connected with people and just learned processes that 10 years of college wouldn't have taught.
1: Oh, yeah. And and same thing. I I do a lot of nonprofit work. And uh, one of the big ones I was doing up until recently was Link Housing. It's an affordable housing developer for California. And they were in the top, when I was there, the top uh, four, fourth in the state. So we were doing with half a billion dollars worth of uh, inventory. And I secured for three years. I stayed 14 years. I had a choice of bidding job or staying on the board. I stayed on the board instead of getting the jobs. But that was about a month, uh, a year for uh, my time. Yeah, that's a long time. But on the other hand, I I ended up being chairman also and of the group. And everybody else was older and political. I was the kid. And I ended up basically getting a master's thesis in business management in the process without a whole lot of homework.
0: That's amazing. Wow. I, I mean, Jim... If architects could be presidents, I would be on the show right now saying Jim Heimler for some sort of president or something. So we didn't even get to the Roosevelt Hotel and other highlights of your over 3,500 projects. So will you be a guest of ours in the future? Can I invite you back right now? Anytime you like. Amazing. So Jim Heimler, he's been our guest today. J-H-A-I, James Heimler, architect incorporated out of Los Angeles. Fascinating man. Incredible career. Uh, Really, thank you so much for being here. All that you've done, all that you've given back, not only for the experience you've gotten and the things you've learned, but how much you've done for everyone else and how much giving you've done between your charity work, your political work, your architectural work. I mean, there's as much give as there is take. We're very aligned on that and I'm very honored to have you on the show. L-I-F-E, luxury and full effect. I'm David Frangioni for Justin Lee. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Head on over to luxuryandfulleffect.com to join the conversation, access the show notes and discover more content. Until next time.